This is Terms of Reference Podcast number 141. But one of the things that's become the most clear out of this impact evaluation revolution is that good sense just isn't enough. So again and again, we have impact evaluations, a program that really seemed sensible. Smart people agreed this really should work, like giving textbooks to students in Sierra Leone or giving microcredit as a poverty alleviation tool. But good impact evaluation can overturn those prior beliefs. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. To begin today's show, I invite you to pause just for a second and take a moment to think about the last time you changed your mind about something. Specifically, I'd like for you to identify something that was either very important to you or your worldview, or something that you had taken for granted. That today you have either the complete opposite or at least a very different perspective on. Okay, got it? Now ask yourself, what was it that made you change your mind? And again, specifically, what evidence did you unearth or were presented with that made the case for changing your mind? For most of us, a profound change of mind doesn't happen very often. But when it does, the effects of such a change alter lives, communities, and entire belief systems. As a final step in this exercise, I'd like for you to think about the core beliefs you have about the work you do in the social impact sector and what you expect that work will help achieve for people in need. Now ask yourself, what would it take to alter those beliefs? even if it meant radically shifting the entire system for how you've expected to serve others. I hope this exercise has properly set the stage for today's 141st episode of the Terms of Reference podcast, where we will be discussing the revolutions happening in development and aid assistance being brought about through the practice of impact evaluation. Impact evaluation holds the promise of confirming or refuting the effectiveness of the practices, processes, and systems we rely upon to help those in need. My guest for this show is David Evans, and he knows a thing or two about impact evaluations. He is a lead economist in the chief economist's office for the Africa region of the World Bank, where he coordinates impact evaluation work across agriculture, education, health, and social protection in more countries than most people will visit in their lifetimes. I know you're going to love this show as we discuss how we can design evaluations to learn more, how to make evaluation real time, and ultimately, how do you create an evaluation that will succeed, even if you're working for a small NGO? I spoke with David in Washington, D.C. Now, before we start the show, a quick word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, U.N. agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Dave. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. David, you are a world-renowned world traveler. Where do we find you sitting today? Currently, I'm sitting in my office in Washington, D.C. Oh, nice. Um, and we're at the beginning of the year, so I hope it's not too cold. Is, is it snowy there? I know that there's been a lot of snow falling it, in the States these days. It was snowy over the weekend, and we still have it on the ground. Great. So when people are listening to this, who knows? This is, you know, we record these six or eight weeks out, so... Maybe it'll be springtime there. Who knows? We'll see. I I hope so. (laughs) David, you are a senior economist in the chief economist office for the Africa region of the World Bank. Your work has been focused largely on impact evaluations. You work directly with governments. You do a lot of the big heavy lifting work, but I don't want to step on your toes. Why don't we start by you telling us, you know, where is it you sit in the development world and what kind of work have you done over the last, you know, decade? Sure. Thank you. So... 
over the last decade, my professional career, what the focus of my work has been, has been to work with governments in various low and middle income countries and try to help them figure out whether the programs that they're using to improve education or improve health or reduce poverty are actually having the desired effect. So is this, are these public investments actually helping people or are they just money down the drain? And what I've seen as I've done this in various regions uh, through my work at the World Bank is a real heightened uh, uh, interest and excitement in governments about using high quality research methods to tell them whether these programs are working or not. And so I've done that work uh, in Africa in the chief economist's office, like you mentioned. I've done that work in an education unit in Latin America and the Caribbean. Right now, I'm actually uh, working on a project at the World Bank called the World Development Report on Education. So once a year, the World Bank puts out a big report. This coming year, the report is on education. And I'm doing that same work, trying to take the best evidence on what works to actually improve education in low-income countries and packaging in a way that should help our partners all over the world. Okay. Now, yeah, I mean, can we have a spoiler? I mean, do you, can you tell us what impacts education? Uh, certainly. So the less interesting answer is that there are a lot of things. But that said, <laughs> there's a temptation. There's a temptation to believe, oh, you know, we've dumped all this money into education over the last 20 years, and not much has happened. And it's true that we've had a lot more success getting people into schools in low and middle income countries than we have getting them to have the desired learning results. And that, when I say we, I really mean the governments and the households in these countries, with a little bit of support from organizations like the World Bank. That said, what we've seen from this work on researching programs that are effective, there have been a number of interventions that really do improve student learning. And so, you know, the kinds of programs that aren't focused on improving the quality of the roof or improving the number of books in schools, but instead improve the quality of the teachers and the quality of teaching that's happening in schools, that kind of focus is where we really see the big gains in learning. Wow. Is, have there been any really specific, like, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not sure it's going to come out in the report, but I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be case studies or, you know, different types of um, specific examples that you have in the report. Is there any one country or one, one area that pops up where you said, you know, there, there was this massive increase in teacher engagement or teacher learning, and they've had a complete turnaround, like, you know, student retention is, is huge and learning outcomes are, are, are completely different? So let me give uh, let me give an example on both sides of that. So uh, on the positive side, a study that was uh, carried out by two organizations, uh, the Poverty Action Lab, together with Pratham, which is a non-government organization that works in India. So they work they've been working on a number of initiatives in India, and one of the things that they did was they worked with schools in one state to say okay, well, it seems like these teachers are teaching very mixed groups of students. You have some students who are, are ahead of the game, and you have a lot of students who are way behind. So it's very difficult for a teacher teaching a class of maybe 50 or 70 students to reach all of those students effectively. And so what they did was they worked with these schools so that for one hour a day, just that last hour of the day, 
the students were reorganized according to their ability. It didn't matter if they were in third grade or sixth grade or first grade. They got put in a group that said, okay, this is about where you're at in terms of your reading ability. And we'll just spend one hour really with targeted teaching at whatever level you're at, right? And with that one hour, there were really significant gains in terms of uh, improving student learning abilities, student abilities to read, but just one hour a day. Now, those organizations have been working over time at integrating that with uh, using government teachers and trying to scale it up within the school system. And they've been seeing some real success. So that's one of these positive examples where restructuring teaching can really make a positive difference. So on the other hand, I said there's a, there's a shift away from inputs. And so an evaluation that I did, I was working with the government of Sierra Leone and they were rolling out way more textbooks. You know, the students were working with something like one textbooks for every seven kids, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, you probably used textbooks growing up. I used textbooks growing up. You know, I think they helped me. When I spoke to Sierra Leonean politicians, you know, they were like, well, of course textbooks are going to improve learning. You know, that's a well-known fact. But given that the government couldn't roll out textbooks to all the schools at once, we worked with them to evaluate and say, well, Let's pick which schools are initially going to receive the textbooks randomly so that then we can we can compare those schools that receive the textbooks initially to other schools that wouldn't receive additional textbooks until later. And then we'll see which schools are doing better in terms of student test scores. And what we found was that, in fact, student learning didn't change at all as a result of getting these additional textbooks. And when we dug deeper into it, what we found is that a lot of those textbooks, they'd made it to the schools, but they weren't actually even making it into the classroom. A lot of the school directors were uncertain how frequently they'd receive t- textbooks in the in the future, so they maybe just used a few textbooks each year, so most students still didn't have access. Well, so just hoarding, they were hoarding resources, essentially. Yeah, exactly, but potentially with good reason, you mm-hmm. know, because they didn't, you know, have a right. I didn't. I didn't. Ma- I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to make it sound like we. You know, it, it, like a, a corruption piece. But it was really like, hey, we just got all this great new stuff. I want to make sure it lasts for as long as it can, basically. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Which is why, you know, just throwing these inputs at schools, people are more and more realizing is is just not going to solve the problem. Even though it's very attractive, right? It's kind of easy to go and drop off a big box of textbooks or, you know, something like that. But it just doesn't deliver the learning gains that we want. Those two examples lead us to a place where I think there's a really interesting new line of questioning we can go down. But before we do that, I want to just take a minute to speak to our audience and say, hey, you know, you've been listening here for the last 10 minutes. If you have found value in this conversation and you like what you're hearing, please take a second to support the podcast by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, or just simply support the podcast by sharing this with your friends or giving us a like on Facebook or, you know, giving a shout out through Twitter, because it really does help. And if you have questions for me or David, you can give us a comment on the website, you can give us a comment on Facebook or shoot us a note on Twitter, and we'll answer them because we read every single one. Thanks. Now, David, I'd like to move our conversation to the changing nature of evaluation. And since, you know, you have such a a broad and deep experience across so many sectors, how has evaluation, impact evaluation, outcome evaluation, whatever, however you want to couch it, how has that changed? What's it look like today? And what is the future of of where that, where that particular practice is going? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So if we just use, I mean, what I'm about to say applies to a lot of impact evaluation generally, but let me just use education impact evaluation as a case. A colleague of mine and I recently did some research looking at the history of education impact evaluations in developing countries. And what we found was that if you go back, you know, even 20 years, all you can find are maybe a handful of impact evaluations. And when I, when I use that phrase, I mean the kinds of evaluations where you have a comparison group. So you can say, okay, well, here's the group that received some sort of intervention and here's a comparison group. And we have reason to believe that those two groups are comparable, except for the fact that the one group received the, uh, you know, whatever this educational intervention is. And so, you know, before that you had you know, what you might say in quotes are impact evaluations, where you kind of looked at these schools over time, but you never really knew whether, you know, the reason that this school that got textbooks was doing better was because it received textbooks or because it was closer to the city and those were the schools that were more likely to receive textbooks anyway, or the reason it had textbooks was because all the students were well off and they were they were buying their own textbooks. And of course, those well-off students could pay for tutoring and stuff like that anyway. So 20 years ago, you have just a handful of these, where Whereas we looked and, you know, as of 2014, you had more than 120 of these evaluations that just look at learning outcomes. And if you look at these evaluations that look at both learning and just trying to keep kids in school, retention, attendance, you have a much larger number, you know, hundreds of these evaluations that are using better and better methods. So that's one of the big shifts is there's just been a big increase in evaluations where we really feel confident we can trust the results. Another big shift that we've seen is that more and more of these evaluations are happening with government and at large scale. So one of the critiques of this movement has been, oh, well, you're mostly just evaluating these little nonprofit programs. So there's a little non-government organization, a little NGO in rural Kenya, and they're doing this little project and you evaluated it. But how does that help the Kenyan education system? You know, this thing you learn from 75 schools. Well, in fact, more and more of these evaluations are being done in partnership with government, answering their specific needs and doing it in a large number of schools. So that evaluation I mentioned in Sierra Leone was evaluating a government program. Evaluations that I've done in the Gambia, in Tanzania, in Mexico, all of them are working closely with government, working at large scale. So what's the next step? You're seeing this increase in evidence. You're seeing the talent base increasing, partnership with government. How do we continue to tweak it to get there faster or make these evaluations more efficient? Or I don't even know what the right question would be to ask to, I mean, is it make them more real time so that, that, you know, we're more reactive, that we have better, better evidence and and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're moving the needle faster. So I think you've put your your finger right on it. And I would say there are three things that I see going forward. And one of them is well underway. And the other two are moving forward, but I would say are still at least partly in the future. So the one that's underway is, you know, in the old days, we had a lot of impact evaluations, and we still have a number of these, where a government says, okay, we want to try this new uh, health program. So I worked with the government of Nigeria to evaluate a program trying to improve the quality of their health clinics in various rural states. And they basically said, well, we would just want to test if this program works. So some clinics got this a special program where management consultants tried to help them learn how to improve their practice, and some didn't. And at the end of that, we learned, okay, well, it turns out, you know, that these management consultants really do make a difference, at least in the short run. 
But we don't really know out of everything those management consultants were doing, which of the things were most effective, right? So more and more evaluations these days are saying, okay, instead of just testing one thing, in the context of, in the context of this evaluation, let's test multiple things. So for example, some colleagues of mine are working in, with the government of Tanzania, and they say, well, we're interested in improving learning. So for some schools, let's give them just a school grant where you know they can use that grant to spend the money however they want to try to improve learning. And let's give some schools some incentives for teachers. So if teachers, if students learn more than the teachers get some sort of bonus. And then for some schools, let's give them both and see what happens. And so if you compare these, what they end up finding is that the grants by themselves don't really uh, make a difference, but the incentives combined with the grants really make a significant difference. And this is work from Karthik Muralideran at uh, UC San Diego and Isaac Mbiti at the University of Virginia. And so from that kind of evaluation, you really learn a lot more than just this worked or this didn't. You say, okay, well, this piece is really important and this other piece is not so important. So that's the first thing, is designing evaluations so that you really learn a lot more. The second thing, which you mentioned, is real time. So the historic model of these evaluations often is, well, you know, we we do a baseline survey and then if it's an education evaluation, you obviously want to wait till the end of the school year. And so you evaluate it, you know, one year later and then, you know, it maybe takes six months or a year with these busy researchers to write up the results. And so by the time you get the evidence in, a really long time has elapsed from the time the program was designed. And those evaluations still make a big difference because they inform the whole rest of the world that are thinking about these issues. But they're a little bit less useful for immediate decision making. You know, if you're doing that evaluation with the government of the Gambia, it's not that helpful for the immediate decision making of the Gambia. And so there's been the beginning of a movement for these real-time impact evaluations where they say, look, we're going to do this evaluation in three months. We're going to do it in four months. We're going to look at the kind of outcomes that you would expect to see a difference in in that time period, and we're going to come back immediately. And there's a firm called ID Insight, which is innovating in this field, and I hope that the field in general adopts more and more of this because, you know, with a teacher training intervention, you have to wait a while to see student test scores, but it shouldn't take you too long to see whether teachers are doing something different. If you go to the classroom, teachers are doing exactly the same thing as before they got trained. I think it would be pretty silly to think, oh, well, maybe a year from now, they'll remember something about that one week training. Yeah, they're doing the same thing, but we expect a different outcome. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the old Albert Einstein definition of insanity? (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that's the second area where I think we really hopefully can see things moving forward in the future. The third one that you see in some places and not in others is more and more of governments doing this themselves. And so in the U.S., obviously, there's a history in other high-income countries. And you see this more and more in in other countries. So in Mexico, the government does uh, a lot of their own impact evaluations of projects. And you see some of this in places like Brazil. Um, But a lot of countries, you're still relying on a fair amount of outside expertise. And so, you know, in Tanzania, you have a number of really well-trained scholars uh, who are doing research. For a lot of these rigorous impact evaluations, you're still bringing in outside expertise. And I think that cooperation from inside and outside can be really great. But I also hope that as we go forward, more and more of this, more and more of this evaluation can take place within government. So they can do this real-time evaluation and quickly do experimentation and update rapidly. I would say that we've seen over the last 
10 to 15 years, a lot of sophistication increase in governments. A lot of government people have received training and are much more sophisticated consumers of evaluation. So they can spot an evaluation that's not worth anything. They can say, oh, look at that. You don't have a control group. You know, I don't really trust your findings. And that's a big step forward. But I think the next step is where we see more and more governments able to actually carry these things out themselves. Mm. Before I move on, there's two different paths I want to take here. But I'm just wondering, has there been, in your experience over the past 20 years, either one evaluation that stands out or... or a series of evaluations that stand out where they just didn't deliver or they fell flat on their face. And as you were saying, you know, either, either the government couldn't sniff it out and, you know, say, Hey, this isn't really worth it. What I'm trying to get at is I've been doing evaluations myself for 12 years now. And we oftentimes come to a point in an evaluation process with a client or, or, you know, within the group that we're working with where the path that you were on as the evaluator has been stifled either by the the person who's receiving the report, you know, or it's been stifled by the by the process itself, or it's you know the the evidence just isn't there, and people kind of have to throw their hands up and say, "Hey, look, we're not going to get the results." And I'm just wondering why, you know, in your experience, why do evaluations fail? I guess that's the key question I'm trying to ask. Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say, so on, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it around before I come back to that, which is. Uh, why I see evaluations succeeding well. And I've seen a few examples of these failures. That, that's a much better question, by the way. Why do, <laughs> why do evaluations no, no, succeed? They're the flip sides of the coin. So one of the things that where I've seen that makes a huge difference is the government bringing being brought on board at the very beginning, A, and B, the government understanding and designing evaluations so that they aren't a thumbs down, thumbs down. It's not a success or failure design, right? So when evaluators show up and, you know, maybe they've used some secondary data, right? They haven't been working with the government and they show up with some result. You know, they present some unflattering result to the government that basically says, hey, this program that you invested a bunch of money in, uh, it was a total failure. So just, you know, there's your heads up. Like, it's no surprise that, you know, some government, that many government people will say, well, we don't have confidence in the way you evaluated this. We don't know you. We don't have trust in you. And we feel like it's a more nuanced story. And so we're rejecting this narrative that you're putting out in order, you know, to get a great publication in a top journal, right? Whereas on the other hand, where organizations like the World Bank, like the Poverty Action Lab, like researchers at individual universities, when they go and they build relationships with governments and they build trust, and it becomes clear that the objective is not some sort of gotcha research where you're trying to catch somebody out, but genuinely trying to figure out, okay, which programs are working, which programs aren't working, the ones that aren't working, is it that they could work better or that they're you know just total flops. When there's that dialogue from the outset, I've seen even results that are not uh, what you'd hope for able to come out. And so I did an evaluation with the government of Tanzania looking at a cash transfer program, delivering cash to households, to poor households. Obviously, there are a lot of ways one might think that could go wrong, right? You're just giving out free money. We evaluated it. It turned out that there were a lot of positive impacts of the program, but a couple of the impacts the government was hoping for uh, didn't show up. And so, you know, the program improved health outcomes and improved savings and uh, a number of other things. It didn't improve educational attendance like the government was hoping it would, and it 
didn't improve consumption. So people weren't actually consuming more food at the level that the government hoped it would. And so, uh, but that said, because we had this relationship, the government had been a part of this evaluation from the outset. They had helped us design the questionnaires, all with the understanding that we would have independence when we actually published the results. They were game. And, you know, they saw the results before we published them and had a chance to think about them and help us think about the nuance in those results. And, you know, that was the, really a recipe for success. And I've seen that again and again uh, with both colleagues at the World Bank and outside. If you can build that collaborative relationship that, in fact, you're much more likely to get open audience, even when the results are not what you hope for. That leads me to a second question. And I'm not sure if you will have an opinion or, or, or even, even a view on this is that we often or I have often found that that evaluation it can be a contentious process, right? And I'm wondering, do you find that that participatory, that collaborative process, is that the, the best recipe as well for removing that contentiousness? Or are there, are there other strategies you'd recommend for truly looking at evaluation as a learning opportunity for improving programming rather than Hey, this is this is a process where we're you know the the donors coming in, we're checking, we're seeing you know, and we're seeing whether or not we're going to give you money. Do you see where I'm going with that? I do, I do. I think so. One piece of that is this collaborative element. I think that eliminates a lot of the contention. And you know, I've been in both places. Like I've sat down in meetings where there was some potential interest in an evaluation and you know the government is very defensive or sometimes the project leader of a, a non-government organization is very defensive they're very concerned and i've sat down on the other side and so the collaboration makes a big difference there's another element that i i've seen make a huge difference and that is uh, there's a temptation that okay you do this evaluation and you come in at the end with your results and you present the results and, and there it is. And then the government kind of says, OK, well, thanks for that. Or we don't like that. And what I've seen as a much better model is a model of evaluation that delivers value to the government or whoever you, you were evaluating consistently throughout the process. And so when I did this evaluation of textbooks in Sierra Leone, what we did was we had a survey at the beginning, a baseline survey of this evaluation. We wrote up the results of that. We shared them with the government. Those were some of the first results that they had of second grade literacy that they'd ever had of early grade literacy. So long before we could tell them the impact of rolling out textbooks, we were able to provide new information that was useful for them in terms of strengthening their education system. Another example of that, I was in the Gambia, and we were evaluating a program to train school management. And about halfway through that evaluation, a high-ranking member of government said, you know, the problem that I really think we have is that the teachers don't know the material they're supposed to be teaching. Obviously, you can imagine that makes it a little harder for them to teach. <laughs> yes. <you know? laughs> I can imagine, you know, that's like if you were, you know, asking me to, you know, teach a, a Japanese class, like uh, the results would be unsatisfying to everyone, I, I, I hope. And so our evaluation wasn't about that, but we were about to do a follow-up survey for our evaluation. And we said, hey, let's add a teacher 
content test. So a little test, you know, of the teachers about whether or not they know this content. Let's add that to this data collection. We're going to be going to these schools and gathering data anyway. So we did that. And what it revealed was that the uh, that this government official was, in fact, correct, that you had a lot of teachers that had very little content knowledge, a lot of teachers who hadn't even really mastered the curriculum that they were supposed to be teaching. And so uh, while we continued the evaluation of this broader training program, you know, training school management, the government used the results of this midpoint survey to then design their own teacher training program and to update their, their teacher training exercises. And so this idea of delivering value all along the way can also go a long way from diffusing any tension around these final results. Mm. What have you seen uh, over the last five years or in recent history, and, and maybe what you know what's on your desk today going forward, in terms of disrupting how we perform evaluation? You've mentioned IPA a couple of times. We've been lucky enough to have them on the podcast. Uh, you mentioned ID Insights. There's, there's a number of people out there who are performing this rigorous research, but they're doing it in new ways, using new technology or using new processes. What are the game changers you've seen that have that are making a difference? Yeah, so I would say that so some, you know, what we've already talked about in terms of real-time evaluations that happen quickly, this is one of the I th- I see as one of the real game changers. There will always be a space for these longer-term evaluations that give us a sense of what's going on. In fact, I was just looking at some great research a couple of days ago that looked at a 75 randomized controlled trials, so 75 impact evaluations of education in low and middle income countries, and 90% of those, the final data collection, the final testing of students happened less than a year from when the intervention had begun, right? And so in the vast majority of cases, we're testing things in a very short time period. And in fact, I think we need a lot more evidence on what the longer term impacts of these are, right? If you have an education intervention that improves student learning by, you know, the equivalent of, you know, one year of learning in math, you know, and then you wait 10 years from now, if you go back and measure those kids, are they still ahead? Has everybody else basically caught up? Uh, What are the long-term impacts? So I think there's always a place for these longer-term evaluations. But I think the real-time evaluations is a place where we're seeing some innovation. I'm hoping that that will go much bigger. So that's one space where there's some room for real change. Another area which there's just some initial work on is a cross-country coordinated evaluations. And so uh, it may have been, you may have talked about it when IPA was on the podcast. Uh, Recently, you know, there was a coordinated effort to publish a number of high quality studies of microcredit all at the same time, right? And this was a real game changer because it, you know, it demonstrated across, I believe it was six countries that in fact, you didn't have the poverty reducing effects from microcredit that a lot of people had believed and claimed over the course of time. That said, microcredit does a lot of good things. It helps very poor households manage from day to day. But in terms of the pure poverty reduction, you know, we saw over a wide range uh, of countries that you just didn't have those effects. There was a similar collection you know, of a program trying to reach the ultra poor. That, that, that came out. And so as we've got this growing collection of evidence, people are able to say more and more things with confidence across countries instead of just saying, hey, we got this great evidence from Peru. Now let's think about how that, how that applies to Tanzania. That's fine. But instead we can say, look, we've looked at this in 25 countries. And in fact, we actually see something very similar. 
I'll give one more example of that, which is from my own work that was just published a couple of weeks ago. So one of the big concerns when new countries are thinking about cash transfer programs, giving cash to poor households, is that poor households are just going to waste the money. They're going to blow it on booze. They're going to blow it on cigarettes. I mean, you know, maybe that's the reason they're poor in the first place. I don't think that's the case, but that's the narrative that you hear sometimes. And uh, it turns out, as we looked at it, nobody or almost nobody had done a study specifically looking at, well, what happens to people spending on things like alcohol and tobacco when they start receiving these cash transfers? But instead, a lot of different countries had evaluated overall spending. So, you know, do people spend more on food? So a colleague of mine and I went through all these studies and we found that in 12 countries, people had within the context of looking at the impact of cash transfers, they had examined, you know, what the effect was on alcohol and tobacco, but they hadn't really pulled it out. Nobody had brought it together. So we brought this together and we put this evidence out. What you see is that in virtually every case, cash transfers don't increase spending on alcohol or tobacco at all. In fact, in a lot of cases, it actually drops a little bit. And that may well come from the fact that when you receive cash transfers, there's usually a program officer giving you the money saying, this money is for your children. So even though there aren't technically strings attached, you know, you might think twice before, you know, going and blowing it all at the uh, local cantina. But, you know, this kind of evidence has the opportunity to really be a game changer because you can just take certain objections off the table. You can say, well, my country is different. You say, look, we've done it in 12 countries. We've seen it in Latin America, Africa, Asia. There's just no evidence for this anywhere. And so the microcredit, the ultra poor studies, some of these, this uh, work bringing studies together like we did with cash transfers and uh, spending on alcohol and tobacco, this has the, the room to really help evidence shift policy in a big way. I think that another one, if, if I'm remembering correctly, and my listeners will beat me up if I don't, but I, with IPA, we were talking about land use. And they were doing some regional studies on, you know, smallhold farmers and how they how they use land and how conservation activities are happening, those kinds of things. And they were finding those results similar to yours. The thing that was striking me while you were describing these regional or cross-country I don't even want to say regional, right? I mean, they're, they're really sort of multi-country evaluations. Is Does this fly in the face of one of the, I would, I would say, flagship mantras of the development world of, you know, cultural relativism, cultural imperialism, um, you know, and just sort of, hey, you know, everybody's got their unique way of doing things. And, and does this now come with evidence saying, hey, actually, we're all kind of humans. We're all kind of working with the same, same deck of cards. I wish that that were true in the sense that it would give us a, it would make development and poverty alleviation much simpler. The fact of the matter is, I would argue it's not true. We're all playing with a different deck of cards, but we have a few common cards in the deck, right? And so, you know, some of these results, the microcredit results, the cash transfer results, um, the ultra poor results, those results have been shown consistent across countries. And that's really exciting. So those are cards that are pretty common across a lot of different countries. And you start to feel confident that you can then, you know, even in countries where we don't have specific evidence on it, that we can trust that the same relationship will hold up. But there are a lot of other kinds of findings where we don't see that consistency. And so, for example, uh, some work that uh, Lant Pritchett and Justin Sandifer have done bringing together evidence on the effect of class size, right? So we all think, uh, you know, if you have kids, you want to get your kid in a class with a relatively, you know, with a smaller class size so that they get more attention from the teachers. That's an intuitive finding. 
And the fact of the matter is that the evidence on the relationship between class size and student learning outcomes varies enormously from country to country. And so in some countries, there's a big positive effect. In a few cases, you see what might even look like a, an adverse effect, but certainly a negligible effect. And so there's a lot of variation in a lot of these things. So I think the message that you take away from that is that you really want to continue to test and learn within each context. And so if something has been effective in a number of other places, that gives a great starting point. And then people sit down and they say, okay, well, you know, how might that apply most effectively here? Mm. A lot of times the way practitioners such as yourself or myself are, you know, in this space, we're, the, the, the term monitoring and evaluation, is those two terms are kept together. How important or how much have you found better monitoring is helping to do better evaluation or better evaluation is spurring along better monitoring of programming, I guess, across the globe? This is a great question. I think that I definitely see that good evaluation, the best evaluation, improves the quality of monitoring. And so there's an, a program in Kenya where uh, some World Bank researchers are, have been working with the Kenyan government to improve the quality of care in health clinics. And one of the things that they worked with the government on is, you know, they worked on some interventions to improve the quality of care. But in the context of this, they had to gather data, right? To evaluate it, you need to know what the quality of care is. So they worked with the government to develop a scorecard, a measurement tool for measuring the quality of care. So then the government adopted that scorecard far beyond the evaluation. So independent of the results of this impact evaluation, this data collection instrument is now part of the government's monitoring program. And that's what I've seen in a number of places where good evaluation can improve the quality of data collection in government systems. And that, you know, the best impact evaluations aren't, you know, completely independent from, you know, what the government or the organization that you're helping are doing, but instead they actually help improve uh, those systems by getting both better quality data and also by often improving the rigor of how uh, organizations think about their own impact. So historically, a lot of organizations have been content to say, hey, you know, we're trying to, to give out uh, mosquito nets or bed nets so people don't get bitten by mosquitoes and get malaria. We're giving those out. And last year we gave out 10,000 of those, those mosquito nets. So that's a success. And in a lot of traditional monitoring frameworks, that's all you had. And I think the rise of impact evaluation has led to a lot of monitoring frameworks thinking about, well, we really need to be monitoring not just these inputs or rolling out these mosquito nets, but we need to be monitoring uh, malaria rates as well. We need to be monitoring use. Are people actually using the things that we're, we're giving out? And these other things that actually bring you much closer to impact, even within a monitoring framework. I'm going to kind of throw your curveball here, maybe, but the rigor and the depth and the precision of the types of impact evaluations you've been discussing over the last 45 minutes here, um, especially in concert with government and some of the larger development agencies, fantastic. I don't know of anybody in our sector who wouldn't be happy to hang their hat on that kind of work and really get into it. But I'm wondering, you know, I, I feel like there's probably a ton of people listening to the show right now who work for a small NGO or they work for, you know, a local agency or a local institution and like, there's just no way we've got the funds to do this stuff. You know, there's no, there's, I don't have the resources. What do you say to them about how they can participate in this sort of movement for, for more rigor and, and for improved evaluation? 
this is a, a central point. And it's true that if you're, you know, a very small NGO and your real focus, you know, you're just trying to provide these services. You don't have, you know, budget space for, you know, lots of data collection, especially, you know, these gold standard impact evaluations where, you know, you have, you're collecting data on a whole bunch of people that aren't even receiving your program, right? You're this control group or comparison group. And so, you know, you say, well, how, why on earth would I collect data on those people? I'm not even helping them. So I would say there are two things to keep in mind on that. So one is that evaluation doesn't have to be incredibly expensive. And so, you know, it's one thing where you have, you know, a large evaluation and you gather data every two months and, you know, you have this detailed survey, but you can do evaluations where you say, look, we care about two or three indicators. And so as we provide this service, we're just going to gather that, gather those data on these participants, you know, on these two or three indicators. But the key is, you really need a credible way of saying, you know, is what I see changing in these people due to the service that we're rendering? And that's why, even if it means we're gathering just a little bit of data, just a few data points, it's really worth saying, is there a credible comparison group? Is there a group that is genuinely, I can say, these people would be exactly the same as the people we're serving, except for the fact that they're not receiving our program. So with a lot of small NGOs, this happens naturally because the NGO just can't reach everybody in the world, you know, with their mosquito nets. And so they can say, look, let's roll out the mosquito nets to some areas initially, and we'll gather just a little bit of data from these other areas, and we can compare. And it just strengthens so much the knowledge of whether or not what we're doing is actually making a difference. It might feel good to be fully invested in just trying to deliver the services. But one of the things that's become the most clear out of this impact evaluation revolution is that good sense just isn't enough. So again and again, we have impact evaluations a program that really seemed sensible. Smart people agreed this really should work, like giving textbooks to students in Sierra Leone or giving microcredit as a poverty alleviation tool. A lot of smart people really believing that this makes sense, but good impact evaluation can overturn those prior beliefs. And that's why even if you're doing the impact evaluations at a small scale and you're gathering just a little bit of data, it's really worth doing them you know, in a way that you've got a comparison group and you can think about the actual impact and not just what's happening naturally. Can I share one more story on that point? Of course, absolutely. Okay, so, you know, I've talked a little bit about this cash transfer program in Tanzania. And uh, I mentioned how the consumption results were not what we'd hoped. It just seemed that relative to the people who didn't receive cash transfers, the people that did, they weren't consuming more. They didn't have, uh, you know, they weren't consuming more meals a day or they didn't have fuller meals. And these are extremely poor households. Now, When we went and we did focus groups, we talked to a lot of the beneficiaries and we said, what did you spend the money on? And they said, oh, we spent the money on food. And they also mentioned other things that we did see in our data, right? They said, oh, we improved the quality of our house. Okay, yeah, sure. They mentioned food and we said, well, but we don't see these in the data. So then we go back to the data and what we see is that consumption did increase for the people who received cash transfers. But here's the rub. Consumption also increased for the people who didn't receive the cash transfers. Because it was a relatively good period in Tanzania. It was a relatively good economic period. Households were doing a little bit better. And as they did a little bit better, the first thing they invested in was food. 
and getting the food they needed. And so the households that received cash transfers, the extra money they got from the cash transfers wasn't really making a difference on food. It was making a difference on health care and shoes for their children and things like that. But this is to say you know, if we had just looked at the people who received the cash transfers, we would have said, look, there's this big impact on how much food they're consuming. It's so amazing. When in fact, that same impact was observed in people that weren't receiving the transfers. That's why it's so important, even if you're on a relatively low budget, to see if you can gather some data on a comparable group to really understand what the true impact of your program is. Mm. I'm super into this conversation, but I'm, I'm sensitive to the attention span of the interweb, unfortunately. There's two more questions I have for you, um, and they're the two questions I, I ask everybody in this particular series we're doing on the podcast. And one of them is you are a person who is just absorbing a ton of data and a ton of information and, and opinions and, and new stuff all the time. Who do you pay attention to? Are there Twitter feeds you pay attention to, blog posts, journals, organizations that you think, you know, these are the gold standard, these, these are the people you need to pay attention to right now? So the short answer is yes, yes, and yes. Um, <laughs> so the slightly longer answer is there are a lot of great places where you can follow this work. And so as a little bit of, uh, I guess, self-promotion, so I write together with a team on a, a blog at the World Bank called the Development Impact Blog. And the focus of that blog is entirely on innovations in impact evaluation in the developing world. So that's one place where you see a good locus. But we are far from the only players in this field. So Chris Blattman, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, has a long-standing blog that touches consistently on impact evaluation, and it's always it's well-written and entertaining. There are websites of organizations that are working hard in this field that are consistently putting out new briefs and data and uh, information about new impact evaluations. Four of those really quick are JPAL, the Poverty Action Lab, IPA, Innovations for Poverty Action, who you've talked to before, the Development Impact Evaluation Group at the World Bank, which is called DIME, uh, and the Strategic Impact Evaluation Fund called CEIF at the World Bank. All four of those, their websites have consistently um, new data. I follow a lot of researchers in this field on Twitter, and uh, it's a great place. They're not just promoting their own research, but they're promoting research um, consistently. You can follow the Twitter feeds of the organizations I just mentioned, like j and IPA. Dinah Pomerantz, who's a professor at Harvard University, tweets consistently about this. Really great stuff. Rachel Glenister, who's the executive director of the Poverty Action Lab, also tweets on this, as do David McKenzie and Burke Osler, uh, Marcus Goldstein, and myself here at the World Bank. And then there are a few individual researchers that I will admit that I have uh, Google Scholar alerts that, you know, I get emails. If something new comes out from these researchers, it shows up in my inbox. And uh, Karthik Muralideran at UC San Diego is doing great work in impact evaluation and education. Pascaline Dupas at Stanford is doing great work on health. Esther Duflo at MIT. Uh, Michael Kramer at Harvard University. And uh, Ted Miguel at UC Berkeley. They're just a, a short list of the people that I follow, but some of the ones that I really want to make sure that I see if something new comes out coming from them because they're doing some of the greatest work in impact evaluation. That is just one of the most impressive lists anybody has ever rattled up. That's fantastic. So my final question for you is, is there anything in the development space, you know, a new innovation, something coming down the pipe, something that you, you know, you've either heard whispers of or, or there's a prototype out there that has nothing to do with your particular practice that you think deserves a shout out? Well, I mean, you see a lot of innovation, and that's one of the things that I think is really exciting. 
you know, as we see innovation, and one of the great things is that my sense is that impact valuation is actually pretty well integrated with all of these. And so I'm going to violate your question, but say one of the things that's been very exciting is that, you know, I work in impact valuation in education, in health, and social safety nets. Those are areas where impact valuation has a pretty established reputation, and that's exciting. But over the last few years, we see more and more impact valuations of government programs, for example, reforming the civil service right? How do you make uh, civil servants, right, bureaucrats more effective? Reforming legal reform, so improving judicial procedures in low-income countries. And so this is completely outside of the area that I work. But what we're seeing is the same kind of evidence is now expanding into fields where people before, they, they never thought that you could do an impact evaluation of judicial reform, right? Or necessarily of improving incentives for public bureaucrats. But in fact, people are doing exactly that. And so uh, the field is expanding and I'm excited to see which areas it touches next. David, this has been a absolutely fantastic conversation. I, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. This has been a real pleasure, and thank you so much for your good work, Stephen. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.